It is, of course, Father's Day. Um, it is a, a wonderful day for me as a father of three um, beautiful kids who I love very, very much. And it has been a, a treasure for me um, to have been a father in my life. I, I've appreciated my children, each one, uh, differently. It's one of those things that fathers or parents will tell you when you're growing up that your kids will be different from one another. And you kind of think, yeah, they'll, they'll have these little quirks or they'll be slightly different. But then you, you realize that as you have children, that they are not just a little bit different from one another. They are like completely different from one another. And our children have vast differences in their personalities and their attitudes and, and the, way, the way God has gifted them and, and given them talents and many other things. It's been a pleasure then to, to sort of see this in their lives. People are generally like that. Certain children of mine are very outspoken. They open up their mouths and what is in their heart comes through. They have very little filter or way of stoppage. Uh, there isn't a plug that we can put in there for that kind of thing. Others others are very quiet and they have a very strong filter and you can't actually tell what's on their heart. Some of them wear it on their faces. They wear it on their sleeves. It comes out. Others keep it to themselves. This is generally what people are like as well. W.C. Fields famously once said that there are two kinds of people, those who lump the world into two kinds of people and those who don't. And we, are, we are one of the former. We lump the world into two kinds of people. There are people generally who wear themselves on their sleeves. What is in their heart comes out of them, almost as simply an impulse. Others are very private and they hide themselves away. There is good in both of these. Those who speak and act in their impulse and in their will are open to the world. There is nothing hidden in them. There is nothing secret in them. The sin that lies underneath their skin just kind of oozes out of them, and it's there for everyone to see. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. There's a bad thing because there should actually be a filter on that mouth. But there's a good thing in that you never have to worry what that child is thinking or what that person is thinking. And it's good for them as well because they will oftentimes be reminded of their need to repent in ways that those who are able to hide are always going to lack. That there will be times in which they sin in their hearts, but it won't ever be known. They will never be challenged on it. They will never be presented with a rebuke for it because it never comes out. James 3 talks about the good of having a control on your mouth. We shouldn't overlook that. It is a good thing to have evil thoughts in your hearts and to not let that come spilling out of your mouth, but it's a bad thing if that means that you are never rebuked on the evil thoughts of your heart. Oftentimes we view sin only as that evil that we can see, and it's very easy for us in our lives to overlook the evil that people can't see, and it's really easy for us to overlook the evil in others that we can't see. So God has come to us and talked to us in the Ten Commandments about those things that we should and shouldn't do. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should honor your father and your mother, especially today. At least if you're a dad, moms, you had your day. You should not bear false witness. It's incredibly helpful then that God does not just focus on what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. You have to be that kind of person. You ought to strive to be that kind of person. But the law also presents to us the matter of the heart, 
that you should not, in the words of Deuteronomy 5, verse 21, covet your neighbor's wife, nor shall you desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The law is often thought of as simply actions, but it is much more exacting than that. It is not just a list of things that you ought to do and things that you ought not to do. It is a, thing, a list of things of what you ought to be, whether those things make it to your hands and make it to your mouth or whether they don't. You are not to covet. You are not to desire your neighbor's things. So today, as we go to, Matthew, or to Deuteronomy 5, verse 21, we talk through the 10th commandment, the last commandment. Let us think through carefully what coveting is and how we are to battle it in our lives. Coveting is simply this. Coveting are any desires that keep us from God. They are desires that keep us from God. It's very easy to think of these desires as being simply the things that we don't have. This is the typical way in which we covet things. We covet those things that we don't have. We look around and we see that our neighbor has a boat or our neighbor has a better car or that they've got a really awesome deck or that they keep their lawn mowed really nicely. Uh, we, we see those and we can covet. After, I, don't, I totally don't covet my neighbor's yard. Uh, we can see, we can look out and we can see all of the things that we don't have and we could want those and put a high priority on those. These are typical things that, uh, and typical ways in which we think of coveting. And it's very obvious, even from Deuteronomy 5, that this is the case. He says, you are not to covet your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, or his female servant. His wife is the first thing mentioned, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, in the context of this, we're typically not looking at people who lack those things. Deuteronomy is assuming, frankly, that you're going to have most of those things. That you will have a donkey. You will possibly have female or male slaves. You will possibly have a wife and likely have a wife. The deal is not that you're wanting things that you don't have, but also that you want things that are better than yours. The grass, it said, is always greener on the other side. There's always something else to want. It's true. That is a form of coveting. That doesn't quite cover all of the definition that I've given to you, though. It is desiring anything that keeps you from God. And there is a flip side to coveting as well. You don't just covet the things you have. You can also covet the things, or excuse me, the things you don't have. You can also covet the things you have. Matthew 19 is an incredibly important passage in this. In verses 16 through 24, we have a story of a rich young man who comes up to Jesus. And the man comes up to him and he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, we'll give this young man all the credit in the world, and we'll try to read him as, as optimistically as we possibly can, that, that from the very foundations of his heart, he wants to know truly what he's asking. He's not simply trying to use Jesus as a pawn to clear his own conscience, but it's a legitimate question for Christ. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Verse 17, Jesus, as he often does, responds to the man in very odd ways. First, he says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. So he says, what good deed must I do? And Jesus responds to him first in what appears to be a quite parenthetical remark that has nothing to do with the actual answer that Jesus is going to give him. He says, why do you even ask me about what is good? There is only one that is good, and that's clearly pointed at God. But either way, Jesus goes on. He says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. 
the young man said to him, which ones? So again, let's read him in the best possible light here. Say he's honestly saying, I, I, I don't really know what you mean by that. Like, what, what kind of commandments do I need to keep? Which, which commandments are most important to keep, let's say? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he quotes the second half of the Ten Commandments. All those things that we would normally think of. And that's a really weird response because what we would like him to do is go to the first commandment and say, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Because when other people have asked him, what is the greatest commandment? He says, this is the greatest commandment and all other commandments flow from it. So as this gentleman comes to him, you would think he would simply say, well, if you keep the first commandment, the rest of them are cake and you don't need to worry about anything. So we would expect that he would go right there, but he doesn't with this particular gentleman. Instead, he goes to the middle commandments, the commandments about neighbors. And he says, you shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, or bear false witness. You need to honor your father and your mother. And he sums them all up by saying, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now, even as we have gone through the commandments, we have noted that on the very face of the commandments, these particular commandments are generally easy to keep. It's generally pretty easy for me not to murder all of you. I've done it successfully for almost a year now, and Lord willing, we will continue on that path, right? I, I think that we can generally keep ourselves from bearing false witness. We can generally keep ourselves from stealing and committing adultery. These are, these are achievable things in and of themselves, not, not how we have expanded them. How we've expanded them has made them much more difficult, in fact, impossible to keep. But on the very face of them, they're fairly straightforward to keep. So why would Jesus go to these? A young man says back to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? That is Again, reading him in the best possible light. He comes to him asking what he needs to do for eternal life because he's desperately trying to keep the commandments. He thinks that he has kept the commandments and he knows that he still lacks something. What do I need to do? And so Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. He says basically you need to do a transaction here. It's a financial transaction, but I promise you it will be worth it in the end. You give up everything you own. You give it to the poor and treasure will be in heaven. He doesn't say you are to just give up everything. Very clearly, Jesus tells him, the good that you want, the possessions that you want, they will be kept for you in heaven. You will have treasure there. This is the promise of eternal life, you see. He's telling him you will have possessions in eternal life. There will be some there for you. Give up what you have now, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. This is the path to eternal life. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. It'd be very easy for Jesus just to open by saying you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul likely the young man would have said, how do I do that? Jesus gives him all of these commandments that he can keep, but the one thing, the one thing he is unwilling to do is depart with his possessions because he coveted them. Notice, on the back end of the commandments, he sums up all of the commandments, but Jesus does not say, you shouldn't covet. 
That's the one thing he leaves out. And why? Because that's the one thing he's going to get this young man on. He doesn't want him to answer it because he wants the young man to see it for himself. The young man would rather have his possessions than follow the Lord. He covets them more than God. That is why coveting is any desire that keeps us from God. Jesus will go on and say, Truly, I say to you, it is only with difficulty a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wealth and desiring what you have here can keep you from heaven. Your desires and your coveting, the things of this world, whether it is your own possessions or your neighbor's possessions, keep you from God. That is coveting and that is exactly what this command is is about. The question then becomes, how do we battle this? If it's any desire that keeps us from God, how are we supposed to battle these things? The first way is that we need to recognize that all we have is from God. All we have is from God. And what we don't mean here, what we don't mean is that you are not to desire those things that God has said you should have. Okay? So if you are being oppressed by a government that is keeping justice from you, you are not to say, I should just be thankful for what I have and keep my mouth quiet before God or before the government. That is not what God has said. Justice should roll down like water. He commends in Luke 18 the persistent widow who goes up to that judge and says, give me justice. He doesn't condemn her for coveting justice. It's something that she should want and should desire. This is coveting those things that are outside of simply things that God has said we should want. You don't really covet food if you are starving. You need food if you're starving. You can covet food if you're not starving and you just want more food. The first way to speak about recognizing all that we have from God is the bare recognition at the very beginning that God owes us nothing. He owes you absolutely nothing. People complain about not getting things from God. If God is so loving, why has he let me persist in cancer or in ill health for so long? Listen, the fact that you have health at all is a gift from God. He doesn't owe you a lick of anything. This can be a hard truth for anyone to swallow, but this is the way the Bible lays it out. And if we don't understand this fundamental point, everything else from here on out will be skewed. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 8 says this, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at the wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. And the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do to it. God says, I get to do with people whom I have created whatever I wish. And therefore, anything that you get from God, any gift that he has provided to you, any sustenance, any shelter is something that we should thank God for. You turn to Romans 1, and we are so able to see that huge litany of sins that occur afterwards, idolatry, sexual sin, including things like 
All manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of murder, envy, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He lists all of these things, and we see all of these things as inherently evil. We see the pollution that happens downstream, but that is pollution, all of it, that happens downstream. If the pollution downstream is horrid, the pollution upstream is worse. The spot of that pollution comes in Romans 121, where although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. That is, they didn't recognize that he is the potter who can do with them what they will, and they didn't give him thanks. They simply weren't grateful for what they were given. We don't think of that as inherently evil. But the rest of the book of Romans, the rest of the first chapter of Romans, sees that initial sin, that unthankfulness in the hearts as unraveling in people all of the sins that we've talked about. All of them flow from the fact that you were unwilling to give God thanks for the good things that he has given to you. Don't simply think about all the stuff you don't have, but you need to be contented with the things that God has given to you. This is why we pray at meals. This is why we, we pray and ask for God's blessings, but certainly should thank him. I, I don't know that I've done a good enough job, but typically what comes out of my mouth when we pray at meals is, is asking for God to bless the food to our bodies for nourishment and strength, and these are good things. Our, our, just the other day, we had our last baseball game for Isaac before the playoffs, and we had a pizza party afterwards, and it was a huge blessing for me to see my children unsolicited while they sat down with their friends to bow their heads and pray before they ate, giving God thanks, hopefully, for the food. Now, it might have just been a rote thing that they did. They might have given a skewed eye at mom, said she's there, she might see me, I'm going to bow my head and fake it. I don't know what was going on in their teeny little brains, but at least they faked it. There was a routine there that they knew that they had to do, and that routine is good, that we give thanks to God for the food that is given to us. That's a good thing to do, because God didn't need to give you food. He could have let you perish. Probably the most misquoted passage in all scripture, next to Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged. Amongst Christians, the most misquoted passage is Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I think that this week, it finally hit me why we misquote that so much. It seems totally out of place in Philippians. Paul is thanking the Philippians for this wonderful gift they've given to him. He's in prison, and they have sent some items to him. And he says, listen, thank you. I, I want you to know I, I really appreciate the fact that you've sent these things to me. But he takes a second to say, I'm really, really not thankful that you sent them to me. I'm thankful that you had an opportunity to express your love for me because I need you to know I don't need these things. I'm content. In Philippians 4.12 he says this, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What he's really saying there is this. We, we read this and we think of people who can climb Everest, 
right? I'm going to climb Everest because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can beat cancer because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We, we read it like that because that's such an immense verse. It's so powerful. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we read the context and Paul is basically saying, I can get by. And we read that and we think that is not nearly meaningful enough to attach to that verse. And so we take it everywhere else. But that's the point, is that actually being grateful for God for the things that you have, and when you don't have anything, and when you have much, being able to give all of it up for God, that takes the power of Christ in you. What Paul means is, Christ can do all things, even make me content. And it's because we think contentment is such an easy thing. We think so terribly little of actually recognizing that everything we have is from God and giving him thanks for that, that we think that all things through him who strengthens me is out of place there. It is right at home there. Being content is more difficult than climbing Everest because people have climbed Everest before on their own power. You will never be content on your own power. Secondly, we need to recognize that all we don't have is from God. Recognize that all you don't have is from God. God doesn't just give us things for our good. He oftentimes keeps things from us for our good. There are times when you are poor because God knows if he gave you much, it would lead you away from him. You would be like that rich man who, unlike Paul, was not content to be abounding and let it go when God calls him to be low again, but that you would hang on to it. There are reasons why Christ has kept things from you. It's not because he's evil. It's not because he doesn't love you or he doesn't care for you. Exactly the opposite. It's because he cares for you and wants what is only the best for you, that he keeps certain things from you. Oftentimes, this is done in order to get people to bring themselves to Christ for more. In John 7, 37 through 38, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That is, you need to thirst. You need to be in want before you know that Jesus can fill that want. That is a good thing that Christ has kept from you. To keep you in want drives you to the Lord. Isaiah 55, 1 through 2, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Come to me, those who are thirsty, who lack, and I will provide for you. Even Hebrews 11, we talked about this briefly in a song we sang this morning. Verses 8 through 10, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. These all, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, died in faith, not having received the things promised 
God called Abraham to go out. And he said, I will give you great land. I will give you the land that you are about to enter. It will be yours. But Abraham lived his entire life in tents. He was a nomad. God looked down at him and he said, I will give you a, a, a parentage that is greater than the stars of the heavens. You, you will not be able to count the number of descendants you have. How many descendants did he have when he died? One. He had Ishmael. He had seven other sons as well. But he sent all of them away. And he gave everything he had to one son. The sand of the seashore does not that make. Why? Hebrews says he was looking for something better. God kept it from him so that he would always want that which is better. Recognize that sometimes what God has not given to you has been for your good. James 4, 1 through 3 You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Amos 4, 6 through 8. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and a lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. That doesn't mean I sent you really nice dentists, right? When we think of cleanness of teeth, we mean people who brush well and they get the scraping done and all that good stuff. That's not what it means here. He means your teeth are clean because you haven't had anything to eat. There's nothing to have dirtied them on. You can't have meat stuck in your teeth when there is no meat to eat. He says, I kept this from you, and yet even then you didn't return to me. Oftentimes, God keeps things from us so that we would run to him. Even in 2 Corinthians, after Paul has gone through and listed all of the ways in which he has been harmed in this world, all the suffering that he has been through, all of the beatings, the shipwrecks, the being expelled from cities in the middle of the night, barely escaping with his life. He ends up in chapter 12 saying this, If I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he, he was taken up to the third heaven, the highest of heavens. But he says, I was, I was humbled by God. After I got exalted to the third heavens, I was humbled by God. God sent to him in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times, three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Think of that. Paul had been through more than you and I will ever, ever experience. Whipped, beaten, starting riots, exiled from cities, running for his life everywhere he went. And this is the incident that he points out and says, this was the breaking point. I prayed to God to take this thing away from me. Whatever it was, it probably wasn't an actual thorn in his side, It was probably metaphorical for something, but he doesn't elaborate on it. Whatever it was, it bothered him to no end. And he said, it needs to leave me, Lord. And God said, no, I'm not going to take it away from you. Because you need to know, I'm sufficient for you. He keeps from Paul what he wants in order to give him something better in return. Recognize all that you don't have is also from God. Now, as... We've been going through the book of Deuteronomy. You'll notice today that we didn't go to another passage in Deuteronomy. There are two reasons for this. Two problems, I guess, would be one other way to look at it. There are a number of passages in Deuteronomy as we finished our study that kind of point at the oddity of 
the book. We talked about this at the first, but it, it, there's, there's difficulty in sort of structuring the book. There's all these places where miscellaneous laws come up, and you can tell because the headings in your Bible can't actually group them together, and so they use words like, these are just miscellaneous laws. It's almost like they have no rhyme or reason to be here. And you'll notice, if you've been paying attention, that as I've preached through the book, there have been decently large chunks of scripture that I just skipped over. It didn't systematically fit into what I was saying was the organizing principle of Deuteronomy, which is that all of Deuteronomy is an exposition on the Ten Commandments or at least this middle chunk of Deuteronomy is. But I've skipped chapter 22, various laws. Chapter 23, miscellaneous laws, beginning in verse 15. Chapter 24, miscellaneous laws. These don't seem to have any connection to one another. 22, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall take not the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you and that you may live long. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Sweet. I don't know how to lump those things together. I don't know under what rubric we could make those things all fit one systematic thought. They are various, they're sundry, they're miscellaneous. And what's more, the second problem is, if you followed where I finished preaching two times ago, you'll notice that there's a big quotation mark at the end of chapter 26 when we finish the ninth commandment. We're now on the tenth commandment, and we're out of explanation. We're like Thelma and Louise. We just ran on a road, and we're just floating there with no text below us. There's a reason for this. The Tenth Commandment's already been laid out. As a matter of fact, it's laid out through the whole book. The Tenth Commandment, anything, if you, if you take coveting as don't desire anything that keeps you from God, that sounds an awful lot like the First Commandment, keep no other gods before me. You will have no other gods before me. The law circles around on itself. That to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul is to not covet anything. They are the same. You, you can't break any of the laws in the middle without breaking those two. You cannot worship another God. You cannot commit adultery. You cannot steal. You cannot lie. You cannot bear false witness in that lying. You can't do any of these things without first coveting and desiring something that you shouldn't desire and without having another God before God. Those two commandments are the same which is why it is not explicitly laid out. It's not explicitly laid out because it is all of the commandments. They are all summed up in that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. And in doing that, you won't covet. This also, by the way, helps explain all those miscellaneous laws. Why does Moses just throw those in there? Why just throw out miscellaneous laws? Why even have a law about birds? That you can take the egg, but you can't take the mom? Maybe there's a reason for it. I think the implication is every facet of your life, which is not covered in all of the law in Deuteronomy, there are places of your life, frankly, that, that don't cover much. It doesn't talk much in the law about how to discipline your kids. Here on Father's Day, that's an important thing. The law doesn't say much about it. Why? Because the law itself is simply an explanation of who God is. That's it. 
And the law is adequately summed up in the fact that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. As we go through and we, we see this, we understand that there's a good reason why we struggle with the law because we miss the point of the law. We think that the law is just these things that we are supposed to do or not to do and we miss the Ten Commandments starts and stops basically in the same place. Loving the Lord your God will be manifested in your lives by the keeping of the law. This also helps explain something like James 2. In James 2, James has been talking about showing partiality. He's writing to these incredibly poor congregations and he's saying, listen, you can't show partiality to a rich man. So if a rich man comes in wearing very fine clothes and a nice ring and you can tell that he's loaded and another poor man comes in, you're not to show the rich man favor. You're not to say, come up here and sit in this good place and to the poor man say, yeah, yeah there's a seat in the back. Now realize that the, these churches, being incredibly poor, probably had very good reasons to do exactly this. They're thinking, hey, if we can reel this big fish in, he will feed us for a while. His tithe alone maybe is more than our church can tithe altogether. And certainly, we're not now talking about like a new building project. We are talking about putting food in the mouths of people. And James turns around and says, no, 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 no. You cannot do that. James 2.8 then says this, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. If you really do that, if you honestly love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Now, Jimmy, that is really strong, man. That is really strong. You're telling me if I show partiality that I'm as bad and I have transgressed the law in the same way that a murderer or an adulterer has. And James will stand there, baldly look at you and say, yes. Yes, you have. You have failed the law in the exact same way. He goes on to say this in verse 11. For he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you commit adultery, but if you don't commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. The law is not these broken up bits of, of commandments that we are to keep and not to keep. This is why keeping a record of rules of good and not good will never actually do it. Because one not good law means that you have looked at God who has spoken, you, spoken to you in the face and said, no, I will not listen to you. I will listen to you here, 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 and here, but not here. James says, the same God who said one said the other. You break one, I don't care about the law, I care about God. You've transgressed God. And you were liable for the whole law. To break any of the commandments is to break the commandment about coveting. It is to break the commandment about honoring God above all other gods. It is to break the commandment that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. And this is why we know that no matter how well we keep the law, the law condemns us. It is unable to save us. Moses' explanation of the law is, is far from a simple listing of rules to follow, but a demand, a demand placed upon us that we love God with everything that we are, that we have nothing beside him, and we have our hearts set on nothing else. All of our lives are to be lived out in full and utter devotion to God 
From the smallest action that we take to the grandest gesture that we can make, everything is done for God. This is what it means when we say God is all in all. God is to be everything to you in everything that you do. From the smallest thing to the highest thing, give him glory and honor for everything that you do. But we cannot love God like this. We, we can't. Our fallen sinful nature makes it impossible. In Romans 7, Paul talks about this very law when he says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I didn't even know what it was to covet. But as soon as the law said, you can't covet, my sinful nature said, yes, please. He goes on to say this. Paul pinpoints in Romans 7 that the problem is the flesh. The problem is the flesh. That we are unable to conjure up the power to deal with our flesh being sinful before God. And he says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done in Christ, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What could the law not do? The law can tell you what you were supposed to do, but it is inept to provide any sort of power for you to do it. You will never love God as you ought to simply because a law has told you, love God. But God can. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law will never, ever give you the power to not covet. The law will never give you the power to not commit adultery. It simply allows you to know that you shouldn't. Where does your power come from? Weakened by sin, your flesh will never be enough, and so we trust in Christ. By the atonement of Jesus Christ and the empowering of the Spirit, we can fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. We can do what God wants from us and we can love him with our hearts, minds, bodies, and souls because he has made us new again. It is by the death and resurrection of Christ that we are freed from sin. It is by his power we are contented in this world and it is by his spirit we are empowered over sin. Therefore, let us rise, O church, and sing songs of glory to our Christ who has set us free that we might love our Lord our God with all of our hearts, minds, bodies, and strength. Let us pray. Father, you are kind to us. You have given us your son. We are sinful before you and we have, we have 
gladly gone against your law. We have known what your law has said to us. It says it in our hearts. It says it in your word. And we have gladly spurred your law and spurred you to your face, Father. But you have been kind to us and filled with mercy for us that you have put upon your own son whom you sent to this world for the very purpose of taking your wrath from us and giving us life instead. You have given us hope and love and life for you. You have remade us new that we might not desire any more those evil things, but by walking in the spirit, we might desire you, that we might not covet or have any other gods before you, but that we can love you and fulfill your word Father, we do not love you that way yet. We are still sinful, and so we repent before you. But our repentance has efficacy. For in the power of Jesus Christ, and by throwing our only hope upon him, he has made us new again. And he will ever do so until we are resurrected with him in the pureness of life. We give you thanks for that this morning. And we pray now as we rise up to sing, that you will empower us to take that message, to stand firm in it, and to take it to the ends of the earth. For there are many who do not know who stand in your wrath. Have mercy on them, Father, for they do not know what they do. And you have called many of them to be your sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. Fulfill your word today through us. In Jesus' name, amen.